you would think, one would think, that um, being at National Geographic for many years, you've seen and heard everything, and you certainly see and hear and learn a lot about the world, but there are always, um, you know, surprises that come our way. New, There are new projects, you know, new knowledge generated by the grantees, um, uh, new ways of looking at the world. kind of program is really important um, in terms of uh, developing, encouraging um, the next generation and empowering the next generation to get out there and, and make a difference in the world. In today's world, it's maybe the most important thing that one can do is to give um, young people that opportunity to pursue their interest, um, to make a difference in the world. I think the storytelling is important because whether, if you're doing pure science, you still have a duty to share what knowledge you generate with the world at large. You know, science, the scientific community and their discoveries should not remain unto themselves, but should be educating people globally. That was Rebecca Martin, former director of the National Geographic Expeditions Council. My name is JP Alipio, and you're listening to The Wildcast. In your life, there is always that one person who makes one of the biggest impacts on your life, your career, your trajectory. When I was 23, Rebecca Martin was that person. She, as the director of the National Geographic Expeditions Council, decided to bet on me, a Filipino kid. Um, She had never met... uh, that lived in the mountains of the Cordillera. I was the youngest ever National Geographic Expeditions grantee. And at the time, they didn't give grants to people my age. And Rebecca put herself out there and decided that the project, my dream project at the time, the Cordillera Traverse, was a project that was worth funding and worth telling the story of. And I am so grateful for that opportunity that she gave me at the time because, I mean, who was I? I mean, I was like a a young boy fresh out of college with dreams of walking across the Cordillera Mountains with very little connections uh, in terms of getting sponsors and funding and all of that. And she bet on my life uh, quite literally and put National Geographic, that yellow border, on my project. And uh, that has opened so many doors for me. And, uh, and that project, that Explorers Grant, actually led to her creating the National Geographic Young Explorers Grant Program which to this date 
has funded over a thousand young explorers. Not to mention, uh, Rebecca has been the person behind many of the big expeditions you have heard of uh, over the last 20 years. There is hardly a big expedition that was done by, you know, people like Jimmy Chin or Alex Honold or Conrad Anker, Michael Fay, all of these luminaries in adventure and outdoors um, that have not been touched by Rebecca. She has done... She is essentially the fairy godmother behind all of this. None of the projects, none of these, you know, amazing discoveries would not have been made without the backing of the National Geographic and, of course, the keys given by Rebecca uh, for this, uh, for these projects. And you can imagine how many careers she started, including my own, um, on this podcast alone, I've had Prasenjit Yadav, uh, Laurel Chor, whose career started with a Nat Geo Young Explorer grant. In the Philippines, we have Hannah Reyes, who has gone on to such amazing, amazing work for international publications, including the yellow border of the National Geographic, being the first Filipino on the yellow border of the National Geographic. And None of these careers, I would say, I mean, I have to say um, the influence she has had on my career, on many, many thousand people's careers, her mentorship, the way she has guided this um, expeditions program, the, ex- the grant program. She's given all of us young people a voice all of a sudden just by putting her stamp of approval on all of our works, all of our dreams. And we talk about all of this. We talk about what needs to be done uh, for the future of exploration and of science. And I'm really happy to have Rebecca on the Wildcast as my guest because for me, it's really coming full circle, you know, coming full circle, uh, acknowledging the people who have brought me to where I am today, my mentors like her, the people who have contributed to to my work and to the work of countless others. I mean, it's immeasurable, really, the amount of knowledge that was produced because of Rebecca's work. And, uh, and here it is. I mean, here I am sharing it all with you, her work, her life and of course the future the stuff that she's working on now so give it a listen and uh, this is such a learning thing for me as well it was like being mentored again by Rebecca about what needs to be done what still needs to be done and why we do what we do have a listen Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for coming on the Wildcast. I'm really grateful that uh, you said yes to my invitation to have you on my podcast. And of course, share uh, your life's work. You know, for, for many of us, including myself, you helped start out our careers. And um, you've been a 
you've you've been essentially like our fairy godmother for a lot of uh, National Geographic explorers. So thank you for for coming on the on the podcast to share your story. Well, thank you so much for having me, JP. Um, it's a great pleasure, and um, uh, of course, you're very special because you were the very first young explorer grantee at National Geographic. Um, I guess that was more than 15 years ago. So, um, you know, you've produced great work, and um, I'm very proud of of the almost 800 young people who the program supported while I was at National Geographic who are all doing outstanding work. And uh, it's wonderful that you have this podcast too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and of course, thank you for, for allowing me uh, to be, to be that first young explorer. Um, I think that was 2004 uh, when you, when you, when you, when you gave me that grant many, many years ago. And I didn't really know I was the first young explorer at the time. Uh, I was just thinking, oh, wow, it's National Geographic. But, I mean, it, it was really such a big deal, especially coming from the Philippines. And um, in, in many ways, it helped with my career, you know, tremendously, like many other, like many other young explorers who have followed uh after me no yeah yeah no it's um it's uh you know these grants you know we launched the program um because we wanted to give young people who might not qualify for regular grants at national geographic but um who had a great idea and uh showed that they had proved to us that they had the skills to to take on the project and the grants were by National Geographic standards smaller and um, yet they certainly were enough to carry out um, some pretty amazing field work around the world. So um, again, I, I'm still, even though I retired from National Geographic and now have my own business consulting and working in exploration, uh, but I'm still very much in touch with a good number of the past young explorers who are now journalists or finishing up their PhDs um, in conservation and other fields, wildlife conservation, um, sustainable management of fisheries and all sorts of topics. And so um, it's very, I have to say, of all the years I worked at National Geographic, I think um, this program for me was the most rewarding because you could really see the results in, in how small grants can change the trajectory of someone's life and their career and their studies. And, um, and it was just very exciting witness definitely definitely i mean it changed my life uh i have to say you know like i remember uh when you sent me that email getting that grant in 2004 and i was up all night just like oh my god i got the grant you know i'm this i'm this young kid from the philippines and and you know the getting that email from you was probably one of the best days of my life i have to say 
especially in 2004. You know, it was a very different environment. We didn't have any social media or anything. And then you just apply for this thing out of the blue. And the first thing you told me, I remember before, was that you didn't fund uh, projects for people my age, essentially. I mean, I was, I think I was 23 at that time, or you said I was too young and things like that. Yeah, yeah, no, because uh, I mean, National Geographic has a very rich history of supporting explorers and scientists going back to the 1890s, but um, the pretty much the majority of people who are funded um, are in graduate school or were at least you know the age of 25 or a little bit older and uh, the mm-hmm. average age then of a, of a grantee I think was something like 45 for many years right so um, so it was some it was something very different and um, and you know it worked really well and because mm-hmm. social media I mean when we started as you said when you received your grant there wasn't social media but but my goodness, when when with the advent of social media, the young explorers were the best promoters for the program because yeah. they were communicating, you know, around the globe about this program. So, uh, you know, they were the promoters. They were the, you know, advertisers of this program. And um, and it very quickly became um, international in scope and uh um, with with an, an you know really strong uh, international application yeah. flow of application for sure. I mean, here in the Philippines alone, I think there's about fifteen uh, already um, young explorers who are doing really amazing things. You know, a lot of different things from different fields, from the seas to the mountains, storytelling to. I mean it, everything you know you've you've had uh, Gab Mejia um Hannah Hannah Reyes obviously yes. one of the products of of this of this grant program and and you as our fairy godmother have gotten to see essentially the effects of this program from you know reading our proposals uh early on when we were you know we were just aspiring for all of these things we all just had these dreams in our heads and writing to national geographic and you were the person behind the screen reading these these proposals um and what was it uh i mean i don't know what you read in my proposal that said okay we have to fund this and what normally do you look for when looking at the proposals uh that come to your table uh looking at uh at funding all of these expeditions, all of these, you know, young explorers or explorers? Um, yeah, that, that's a really good question. And uh, I should note that, that, you know, that there aren't, there aren't a lot of resources, um, funding resources for young people, you know, between the ages of 18 and let's say 23 or 24, there aren't many resources and National Geographic offers those, um, the Explorers Club also has um, some uh, uh, smaller grants uh, for young people to get, you know, out into the field. But, um, you know, it, it does need to be um, a unique project. Uh, 
and we need to be able to envision any sort of, um, uh, we had, of course, Young Explorer storytelling grants, conservation grants, and um, field, scientific field research grants. But it had mm -hmm. to have either a strong hypothesis or strong story to tell. Um, it, it, uh, if it was unique, um, and I, I, you know, think of your projects, um, you had a couple of grants. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, for instance, Prasenjit's, uh, Yadav's project on the sky islands of, um, of India, um, these, uh, high mountain valleys, which have endemic species that are found nowhere else on the planet, um, that sort of thing. So it was something, you know, we, you would think, one would think that um, being at National Geographic for many years, you've seen and heard everything. And you certainly see and hear and learn a lot about the world. But there are always... Um, you know, surprises that come our way. New, there are new projects, you know, new knowledge generated by the grantees, um, uh, new ways of looking at the world. And, um, mm -hmm. and that's what the young explorers uh, brought to the table at National Geographic. And I think, you know, they will continue to do so and they just need an opportunity. Um, so, you know, most of the grants require, like, like I say, a lot of experience or graduate degrees, that sort of thing. But it's a small grant can go a long way to um, elevating um, an individual and their work because it's hard to find the money to get into the field. And, you know, it's it's harder in some countries than others, but I even have met young people. And that was one of the impetuses for starting the program is meeting young people in this country who are spending a tremendous amount of money and going into debt for their college education. Mm -hmm. So how can they find the money to go on a field project? And I, I met yeah, a young definitely. woman who was an intern at the Smithsonian Institution, which has our amazing museums here in Washington, D.C. And she said, you know, I wanted to go to Mongolia to do field work because she was interning at the Smithsonian with archaeologists working there and she said but I didn't have the money you know and mm -hmm. that's an American kid so um, this this kind of program is really important um, in terms of uh, developing encouraging um, the next generation and empowering the next generation to get out there and and make a difference in the world and um you know whether it's conservation or tackling um big socioeconomic issues through their research and documentation and and other work um but uh it's it's a little bit of funding that goes a very very long way in in um changing the course of someone's life, like you say, um, and, and giving people confidence too, because, um, while it may be, um, intimidating to apply for a grant. And I think honestly, it is even 
for some of the most experienced people, it's always, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get this grant. Um, but for sure, for right? sure. But your first time around, I mean, you had a lot of courage to apply for the grant and, and yeah, <laughs> right. And you just have to try it. And, um, and as, uh, a lot of the young explorers learned, um, uh, if they didn't succeed the first time, in fact, the second time when they filled out an application, it was better than the applications being re reviewed who were first timers for that meet, that grant meeting because they had gone through the process. They learned a lot. They spoke to the staff about it and, and then, you know, they did, you know, much better. So, so it's always, um, you know, I always encourage people don't be afraid of not succeeding the first time around and there will be declines, you know, you will be uh -huh. declined, you'll be turned down in your life, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep on pursuing it and, um, and always right. seek out advice from uh, mentors, whether they're professors or people who, who you've worked with in the field, um, you know, colleagues, friends, um, yeah. seek out people's advice because, um, to, as we say, two heads are better than one or three or four heads. Um, mm -hmm. and they can give you some, some ideas as well, um, in shaping your project, but, um, but just take the leap if you have an idea. And, um, I, I know, you know, a good number of young explorers who were, turned down the first time and went on, I mean, they're just doing amazing work now and they're very successful. So, um, no worries. It's just, it's a badge of honor. Being declined is your mm -hmm. badge of honor because you made the attempt and it's all part of right. the process of, of learning how to get funding, which is, um, challenging at, at any age, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's really interesting how many of the young explorers have gone on to really amazing work. You know, um just in the last two months I've seen um Devlin Gandhi. He he just came out with the like a new study where uh they found like the earliest human habitation in North America or something like that in a cave. Um of course, you've had Prasenjit in, in this last month's uh, Yellow Border magazine, Hannah Reyes in, you know, multiple uh, magazines. Her work has come out in the Nat Geo magazine over the last few years. And how does it feel for you as, you know, that our, basically our, our grand, grandmother giving out, uh, giving all of these young people this opportunity to to start i mean you, you essentially gave us all our seed money <laughs> to start on whatever passion that that we have you know whether it's in conservation or archaeology or or essentially wildlife photography for presenjit um how does it feel now you know 15 years later after you gave the first grant to me and seeing 800 plus individuals doing such amazing things. I mean, you, you've, you've given birth essentially to all of this by giving all of these seeds of opportunity to all of these people. Um, 
I am extremely proud of everybody. Um, and, um, and I think, um, I think, you know, in today's world, it's maybe the most important thing that one can do is to give um, young people that opportunity to pursue their interest, um, to make a difference in the world. I also feel that um, since I launched the program, um, that I'm not as discouraged about the um, possibilities in terms of the health of the planet, uh, because I feel like all of these young explorers are, each one is a very bright light and is very committed to their work and um, the well-being of the planet and its inhabitants. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, for me, incredibly encouraging and um and it just yeah it made me extremely every day I'm I'm proud of you know young explorers who they'll let me know what they're doing you know one just received a position special position at the Smithsonian Institution Claire Fiesler which starts in the fall um and uh you know they're sort of uh um one piece of good news after another about them. And, uh, and I'm still working with some of them and helping them with their projects through my new business. And, um, uh, you know, I was on a hike with Claire in our Rock Creek Park here in Washington, D.C. with Claire and her baby just uh, oh, wow. a few weeks <laughs> ago and a socially distanced hike. But, um, but um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, you know, they're sort of uh, wonderful relationships that were forged. Obviously, I'm not in touch with all 800 young explorers with whom mm -hmm. I worked, and now there are more because National Geographic continues that program, which is which is wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there were many years where it was it was pretty hard for younger people to get in the door. I mean, Jane Goodall did get in the door. I think she was 23, but she was introduced to National Geographic by Richard Leakey, um, the renowned um, paleoanthropologist. Right. So um, she had somebody open the door for her, and she said, you know, everywhere else she had been closed the door on her. National Geographic was the first place to fund her because, as she told me once, you know, everybody mm -hmm. thought I was crazy what I was proposing. Um, but... There you go. Um, Louis Leakey introduces her National Geographic, says, okay, let's give this a try and look what came of it. So uh, you yeah. know, global icon in, in conservation. And um, so so the fact that that there is a specific program, otherwise, you know, there were occasionally young photographers who would come into the fold and others, but... Um, this program sort of established a precedent where we are going to, in a very uniform way, um, invite young people to present their ideas, their projects to us and review them and give a certain number of them, you know, uh, seed money for their projects. And, um, right. and, uh, and it, it honestly wasn't long. I know there were some people who wondered, well, what will come of 
a program like this, you know. Um, at the time when we were, you know, my my vice president John Francis and I, he was very strongly behind this, and uh, you know, people were asking us, you know, what in the world do you expect to see? And um, and we just said, let's just wait, be patient. And it, it really wasn't long, you know. Within the first year, the results started coming in, and. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, and not just that, it sort of rolled over, didn't it? I mean, it, it people built on on that first experience and essentially made even more amazing work. Uh, especially, I mean, you know, you, you always say that the grant is small. It's usually between, it's usually a five thousand dollars or less, and for for the grants, it's not really very big. But then having you know that yellow border behind you, and having being able to say that you are working with National Geographic definitely sort of created more doors that opened, um, especially for me. I mean, also here, and I'm sure it's the same experience for many other young explorers who have gone through the program. Right, right, and it's it's um, that you know sometimes uh, the grant requests or their budgets were higher than what we were funding then. I believe now the grants um, are up to $10,000, but um, but at the time, $5,000 was the, the cap on what you could request. And um, if their budgets were larger, it, it just made it so much easier for them to find that additional funding and because of the National Geographic brand. But I think it's true in general mm-hmm. that once you you are able to secure some funding, um, a potential funder will say, okay, well, they receive support from so-and-so if, if it's National Geographic yeah. or a foundation. Okay, somebody else is behind them. You know, why don't we put in some money? You know, so that's it's, true. it's like a seal of approval receiving that that first support for your project and um Mm -hmm. and and you know what what i've also seen is that a lot of the young explorers have um become very good at um at fundraising for their projects because um it's a real skill um it definitely is yeah. yeah writing grants and convincing people that your project is worthy of support that it will, you know, hopefully have some kind of positive impact in the end. Um, but you get a strong sense, I think, early on um, for what the funders are looking for, you know. And if it's a foundation, you know, how is this going to make a difference in the world? Because that's what our foundation is about, for instance. So, um, right. So it's better, honestly, to learn these skills earlier um, and receive sometimes the rejections because that just makes you a stronger applicant um, and grant mm-hmm. writer. Um, the earlier you go through it, the more, the sooner you become, uh, you know, more empowered to um, receive these funds because you just know how to make your case um, in a stronger way and more convincing way. So, right. um, And when yeah. you look at, 
the grants, the the applications that come to you, how much does the storytelling part play play in in actually getting the grant or or seeing seeing it through? You know, um, that's a good question because if you're applying for a a scientific grant, um, I mean National Geographic obviously has a huge um, storytelling mechanism. Um, and a lot of the grantee content goes onto the website. Um, but, um, you know, the young explorers have been featured in books and, uh, and other uh, National Geographic content. But um, I do think since it is a storytelling business, even though a scientific application, you have to set forth you know, a hypothesis, a strong hypothesis, and the methodology methodologies you're going to use in the field and what the intended outcomes are. Um, but in a way, um, if you're applying for more of a storytelling grant, which is, um, was I also was director of the Expeditions Council, which was National Geographic's first storytelling grant program, um, which I launched in 1998. And so you had to convince somebody, first of all, was there really good science or exploration there that had a compelling story to tell? And maybe a story mm -hmm. that would that would have a positive impact on a place. Like, you know, I think of Mike Fay who walked more than 3,000 miles across Congo and Gabon. That's right. That's the Africa transect, right? Right. A mega transect with the photographer, amazing wildlife photographer, Nick Nichols, who joined him at different um, stages of the journey. But um, nobody had done a scientific transect of that length ever before because the classic transect was like 35 to 70, 70 miles max. And... Um, and the, it wasn't just the science that was done, but also Nick's, the visual, the storytelling and sending an incredible science writer, David Plomman. And it took them 15 months to do the walk. And, um, this was actually one of the first projects that the Expeditions Council funded. Um, and when they finished, they had all these images of, of, the wildlife of the forest, and they convinced the president, then president of Gabon, Omar Bongo, that these areas should be protected. They could be established as parks for ecotourism. Um, and they did that with um, uh, other colleagues and officials. But uh, it didn't take very long afterward. It, I think it was within two years that Gabon decided to establish 13 national parks at um, 11,000 square miles um, of the country. Wow. So um, uh, it was sort of 13% uh, of the land area of the country, I believe. Um, wow, that's huge. It's huge. And they still struggle because there's, you know, deforestation and poaching, but at least the parks exist and they um, have been figuring out the best ways to manage protection of the parks and have some really good people in place now. And 
here it is, uh, uh, what was it, two years ago, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Africa megatransect at, at Nat Geo, or two and a half years ago. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's holding, but you still, you have to, that's the tricky part about conservation, which Mike Fay always said, you know, it's one thing going in and doing conservation, but if you leave and you don't have good people remaining on the ground, then it can easily, everything you've accomplished can fall apart. Um, and especially right. with changing right. governments. And um, so so that's the trick. But luckily um, in Gabon, the son of the former president, Congo, um, is now president. And he's um, very much behind the conservation efforts. But that's that's a great example, and and it was a, a role model for Steve Boy's um, Okavango project, and also for Enrique Salas Pristine C's um, project, um, mm -hmm. and you know helping to establish protected areas on land in the oceans, and um, and others you know have since. Um, you know, they, it might be a scaled down model, but they realize the power of the media for conservation. And, uh, and so to your point, I think the storytelling is important because whether, if you're doing pure science, you still have a duty to share what knowledge you generate with the world at large, you know, science the scientific community and their discovery should not remain unto themselves, but should be educating people globally. Um, and it allows people to make better decisions, you know, and how they live and, you know, their role in protecting the planet and making sure that life on earth is sustainable. Um, so that's a but, very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the storytelling is fundamental, whether it's research, conservation, exploration. Um, we need more storytellers, and, and Nat G has been really good at um, training people up um, through their um, uh, storytelling, or they call them science-telling boot camps, um, training their grantees how to um, communicate more effectively and um, bring back strong stories from the field. Um, so, yeah. Those are, those are things I didn't get to go to <laughs> as, yeah. Yeah. as the first young explorer, unfortunately. Yeah, but you could still, you could still maybe sign up for them. Um, and now I'm actually working with the Explorers Club, and they've launched a, a storytelling um grant program on science and exploration with discovery. Mm -hmm. So um, that was launched at the end of April. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they're also going to be giving some um, workshops on, um, you know, communicating about your scientific, your research and your, your field work. So, and there are a number of university programs now, in fact, um, a former young explorer, Louise Johns, just received her master's degree in science and environmental communication from, I believe, um, 
uh, University of Montana. And uh, okay. so there are these master degree programs. Also, um, a former young explorer is Gabby Salazar is at Florida State in Gainesville. All right, Gabby. I know Gabby. Yeah, she's getting her PhD in um, uh, science communication, in essence. That's and she studied uh, her, for her master's degree. She studied in London, um, uh, the same subject. So right. um, there's more of a focus now on communicating effectively about science and conservation, so that you can better help people understand. Uh, what's going on in the uh, around the world, and and you know make them care, and if they care, mm-hmm. then hopefully they'll get engaged at some level. Yeah, I think it's a really important skill now, especially. I mean, in this time, there's a lot of fake news. Social media tends to create all of these fictions um, around us, and. And also the time of um, this pandemic, essentially, we really need good science communicators to be able to communicate what's needed in order to move forward in this pandemic. I mean, um, the U.S. is in a really bad shape, uh, even worse than we are, considering we're a much poorer country yeah. uh, in the pandemic because science communication in the U.S. isn't maybe as good. <laughs> I'm not sure. how, it, But it, it's, it's a really difficult time for science i would say and and there's really a big need for it to be communicated to the common person and i you know i've worked with universities and as you say there's really this tendency to be you know just share it with your peers share it with your friends you know the journals get read by your peers and and your work doesn't really spread outside of those circles and you know, Nat Geo has been really good at that, but I think scientists and and people who work in the academe need to be better at communicating their work to the greater public. Right, and and I do know, for instance, I think at at a number of big scientific conferences, which I know some are canceled and I, perhaps some are going to be happening online, but I think that there's uh, more and more of a push about um, communicating effectively about science. I attended, a, a we had a Young Explorer grant workshop at Yale University, and I think it was, a, what was it, 2016. And um, they also held a sort of a, a symposium on science communication, and they had really brilliant <laughs> presentations. And actually, a few of our Young Explorers were there, including... Anand Varma and um, Joe Reese was yeah. there. I think Joe Reese was there, um, and and a few other people. But it was um, it was extremely powerful and impressive. And I think that this is going to be um, it's an emerging field, but I think it's going to emerge even more quickly because um, we've gone through this experience where. Um, our leadership in the U.S. is um, uh, not necessarily um, digesting or accepting what the science is. And, and granted, I mean, we, science learns new things every day, and that's something that yeah. needs to be understood. So, um, you know, 
that first we were being told not to wear masks, and then we were told you should wear masks. Um, and um, you just have to you have to go with the flow because they're just researching constantly every day and learning yeah. new things. So it's very it's fluid, and that's one thing that people have to accept that it's not because science is incorrect. It's because there's new knowledge being generated every day. And so you have to have an open mind and just be ready to go with the flow and, and listen and also, you know, listen to your intuition. I, when they first were saying, don't wear a mask, I was wearing a mask because I thought, you know, I'm going outside and there are some people who may be infected. And the best thing I, I know to do is wear a mask and glasses or sunglasses um, mm -hmm. to protect my nose and mouth and eyes. And, um, and so I did it from the beginning, even though I had friends who said, they said not to wear masks. And I, I, right. I don't care. Um, uh, you know, to me, what's logical is I've got to protect, you know, the parts of my body that can be exposed, most exposed to the virus. Um, but right. um, just reading, reading um, real science and, and um, it, you'll hear different things from different institutions, but it's important to, it's not hard to access. Um, and it, some of it may be scientific, scientific sounding or scientifically based, yeah. but you can still, you can still access it and, and glean the key points and make your own decisions. But, Every person needs to um, do their part in reaching out to all the, the media available, the scientific institutions, um, getting that information and, you know, keeping up to date and um, making your decisions based upon the information that you're able to gather and process, you know. Um, so, right. but you're right. I mean, I think that 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 the leadership uh, some leaderships more inclined to listen to um, science and others um, don't have um, a, any strong or significant background in science so mm. um, they don't have an understanding of of its value and importance and um, and and it, it's true for, you know, some citizens. They're just um, not as familiar with science. And um, it, it may be too, um, it's hard, hard for me to say, but it may be that in, in some school systems, there's not as much science taught as there used to be. So there's uh -huh. not as much of a strong connection with it. And I'm not saying everywhere, but, I, you know, it could, it could, you know, it, it run sort of state by state and, right. and different schools have different um, objectives. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's another issue. You know, it, it sort of needs to start also from the ground up in terms of the educational system. Right. And you mentioned a while ago that you just started your own business. You're no longer with National Geographic. Um, can you tell me a little bit about this new venture of yours? Yes. Um, so I, I launched this business um, a little over a year ago. It's called Exploration Connections. And it's a consulting business to 
help explorers um, and organizations who are interested in um, in developing programming around exploration. For instance, I've been consulting with the Explorers Club um, on the development and launch of their new new grant program with Discovery and. Um, uh, I'm helping individuals with their um, projects, getting some funding, um, advising them professionally. And I also have a speakers group um, of more than 40 individuals who are not all explorers. Some are working in business, but the point is to connect business with these, these people um, and to provide mm -hmm. opportunities for um, explorers to um, not just explorers, but also people who are expert in risk management, which has ties to exploration. Because um, yes, you, know, you have to manage a lot of risk and exploration. But um, to translate what they do for businesses and organizations, um, it's a way of bringing them additional income through these, these presentations. And for a lot of uh, organizations and businesses, it's very exciting to have an explorer mm -hmm. convey um, their story tr and translate what they do to, let's say, um, risk management or um, conservation objectives or um, uh, risk management for and finance or... Um, building strong teams, um, that sort of thing. So um, it's we launched the speakers group in February with an event at uh, California Nature Conservancy. And, of course, a number of the events this spring were um, postponed until yeah. the everybody's recalibrating, right? So now um, uh, I'm going back uh, to the clients that um, had been booking with me and um, recommending online presentations, which I think are becoming very accepted now. Um, yes, definitely. I mean, yeah. it's the norm. <laughs> yeah, it's the norm for now. And and uh, so, yeah, and I, um, I'm hoping to get people back out there uh, starting this autumn and uh, there'll be more on my speakers on my website there are also um, uh, on the blog page there are interviews with uh, an array of explorers about the challenges they faced um, doing their work whether it's fundraising or in the field and how they overcame them and um, what drove them to pursue what they're doing now and um, mm -hmm. what recommendations they have for the next generation. Um, and so um, I, I highly recommend to people that they take a look at that. And then we just launched a, a news and reviews page. So we're going to have um, a number of book reviews uh, going up that will be in, of interest for explorers and oh um, nice yeah and then um, also some some resources will be available I am um, I highly recommend a, a new book um, that came out um, uh, by um, Tim Ward and and, um, 
and his wife, Teresa, looking at her last name here, is um, Teresa Erickson. And it's, uh, the title is, it's a little book, it's uh, titled Virtually Speaking. And you can get it digitally. Virtually speaking. Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's, it's, I'll look uh, it up. It's only 70 pages, but it has great, these these two, uh, Tim's on my advisory board, are high-end speaking coaches. They coach United Nations, World Bank, uh, World Wildlife Fund. Um, they mm -hmm. coach people internationally on um, pre presentation skills. And um this book is basically, it has a lot of great pointers about how to um, give an effective presentation because it's a little bit different um, virtually. And it's, for, you know, from the technical aspects, how to place your computer, you know, the lighting um, and, um, yeah, your positioning and um, a host of other really yep. useful that, that's gonna be very very useful for i mean this time i mean i don't know how long this whole pandemic is going to last uh obviously it won't be finished by the end of the year and stuff like that is going to be very useful it's interesting i mean the projects that you're 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 talking about and um how do you think this new we're, we're going into essentially a sort of a new I would say a new reality for the world. And you funded all of these big expeditions, explorations all over the world. How do you think that's going to change with um, this new normal? I mean, nobody's traveling. There are no, you know, there's no Antarctic explorers. There's no people climbing Everest at the moment. Um, there's no big expeditions. There's no big explorations. And how do you think these things are changing, going to change um, with this new normal that we have with the, with the virus? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, as I tell everybody, it's a great time for incubation of ideas and to really think through what you want to do. Um, I also know a lot of explorers who have been out in projects but haven't produced all of the, for instance, the storytelling that they want to do. So, for instance, uh, Prasenji just had that beautiful coverage on National Public Radio of the root bridges of Meghalaya, India. Oh, right. They saw that right. one, yeah. It's, beautiful. Uh, yeah. So, so what do you have in hand that you haven't told stories about? You know, it's. I think it's uh, making the most... Part of it is making the most of what you've got because we all know that we rush around, we rush around our lives and the world, um, you know, and explorers do from one project to the next. But sometimes there are some real gems just sitting at home that you haven't done anything with. Um, um, I'm just about to publish uh, uh, some great photos for a, a news piece um, that a friend of mine who's a photographer and explorer um shot years ago but they're spectacular and it's around a one of the most renowned um climbers in the world Catherine Destevel and um so all of a sudden things that seemed like you know you might not touch them again oh okay they become relevant um, so it's, I, I, I'm a great believer in making the most of 
what you have before you and really think about, okay, what do I have in hand right now? But also incubating those ideas because eventually we will be able to travel. I mean, I spoke with somebody last week who for work flew from uh, Washington, D.C. to the Czech Republic, and he said he felt very safe on the plane and he's fine. So there are people who are traveling. I think that, um, you know, once the vaccine is ready, I think people will start traveling a bit in the new year. Um, mm-hmm. But I think everybody's going to be more thoughtful about when and how they travel. Um, and what I've learned in speaking to people is that they realize that they actually, this this experience, and, and as we say, I don't know if you have the expression in the Philippines, but every cloud has a silver lining. So something, yes. something good comes out of bad things. And what a lot of people are learning is that maybe they weren't managing their lives in the best way. Maybe they were trying to do too many things. Um, maybe, you know, they didn't have to, <clears throat> you know, have three extra jobs um, because they wanted to keep busy because they weren't spending enough time with their kids or, you know, just were involving their kids in too many things. So um, I think it's made people realize that just by staying at home, that there are, there are actual benefits where people are feeling more centered and sort of in touch with, okay, this is, this is my life. I didn't actually stop to think about what my life is about and wasn't as in touch as I should be with my friends and, you know, family because I'm so busy with my work. And so I think that uh, it's going to affect in a positive way our values and maybe um, uh, ultimately help us lead um, less stressful lives and maybe explorers Maybe they won't take quite as many trips a year because, um, as you know, I mean, it means a lot of time away from home. So I think we're all learning to better prioritize um, and uh, reevaluate what means the most to us in our lives. But I do think that there's a lot that every explorer I know can do at home because they're on the road so much that everything they've gathered, um, you know, doesn't always get Just processed. gets stuck at home. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't <laughs> get processed. And so what can you do with that? You know, and you can do a lot. I mean, and that Prasenjit's, that Root Bridges story is a perfect example because it's absolutely yeah. stunning, you know, and he, he found a wonderful home for it. So it's, it's time to think creatively, too, about um, how you can better share the knowledge that you've gained and the stories that you can tell about that knowledge gained in those experiences um, to a broader audience. What, you know, what are the new ways of sharing that story? So, yeah. um, so I think it's, you know, everybody's sort of going through their archives of content, but, um, but exploration will happen again. And I think, uh, you know, people will be, keeping an eye on, you know, what are the hot zones for COVID and they'll have a, you know, vaccine. But, you know, honestly, when you travel to a lot of places, you have to, 
get your shots and be vaccinated and be yeah. careful. I remember Nat Geo has a vaccination rule <laughs> that, yeah. that essentially vaccinates you before you leave, right? Yeah, the medical office, right? And yeah. uh, and it's important uh, to get those. You know, I, I got rabies shots before I went to Mongolia just because some of the dogs do have rabies and the nurse had just had a film crew in Russia who were bit by wild dogs and so mm. you know they felt this is really important um so right. so you ha- you know that's the other thing is weighing okay do i go to this area if you know if it's having uh you know a breakout of of some serious disease or you know mm-hmm. right do, do i hold off just that's a wait and see. Yep. I put that on the back burner, right? Now is not the mm-hmm. best time to go. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, think about what you can do. And honestly, um, I, I, an old colleague of mine at National Geographic, Barbara Moffitt, who was director of communications, she and I, all, we work very closely and we always love the backyard exploration um, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, dinosaurs in your backyard or, you know, or evidence of dinosaurs in the Grand Canyon or, um, you know, any number of projects that one could do um, not too far from home. There's always right. exploring to be done. So, um, yeah. yeah, I remember E.O. Wilson, uh, uh, the renowned um biologist, longtime Harvard professor, um, is telling me at an event that I told him I lived in Washington right next to Rock Creek Park, and he said, that's where I started my exploring. He studied ants, and that's what he did, wrote a PhD on. Well, everybody starts at home. Right? And he said, I I went exploring in the park for hours at a time, and uh, that's sort of what led me to wanting to be a scientist. So, um, so don't, don't discount what's, you know, right, right beneath your nose, you know, and right next door Mm -hmm. there, you know, new species were found in a bio blitz in Rock Creek in, um, in Central Park in New York. Um, so, you know, there are always new things to discover, even if it's very close. Right. So it's it's really interesting how you say we have so much of this archives because I still have um if you remember uh you lost a bunch of my film and, and uh it, some but... years ago <laughs> oh it was misplaced it was misplaced somebody, in somebody left and didn't tell you that they they yeah. were leaving and yeah. I still have a lot of that I haven't actually because there's so much of it yeah I haven't actually gone through everything and you're right you know everybody and most of the explorers probably have like you know boxes of of all of this content or or, or hard drives of all this content uh, that they can use to create so much i mean so much creative stuff and it's true and also you know our backyards now uh because we've been stuck essentially in this one location we've been trying to look at our our forest nearby as as like a like a new place and i've actually discovered <laughs> new spots near my home like to run or to bike or to explore Uh 
that I've never been to um, before, you know. So so definitely there's there's a lot of exploration to be done. Um, one last question before before we end things. Um, you've you've done all of this. You've funded you know th- at more than a thousand projects. Uh, you've started the careers of more than eight hundred young explorers, including myself. And moving forward into twenty twenty and the next decade, what do you think are the most important things that should be funded uh, that will make a difference um, for our planet and for the people of this planet? That's that's a good question. I mean, um, there's a lot of um, resource extraction going on around the planet, and it's natural because people need resources, but... Um, the question is, how can we best manage those resources? So, um, I think that, and, and also help people find new ways to live amidst the changes. So, you know, if it's adaptation to climate change, you know, sharing, we had one young explorer studying that, and, um, she's now working on her PhD in that field. Um, and, you know, generating knowledge, new knowledge to share about, um, how we can live more sustainably, um, and protect the planet, you know, as, as we were saying more recently at Nat Geo, um, you know, to have a planet basically in balance or strive for a planet in balance. So, because we don't want to run out of resources, um, because that will mean that the human situation, the human condition will become far more challenging than it is today. So, I think it's the kinds of projects that are are solution-seeking, but also it's still important to understand um, what what we have now and appreciate it, because... Um, whether it's, you know, birds of paradise or, or other species, um, we could lose them um, if, if the resource extraction continues. So what's out there? What do we need to know? And um, you, won't, you won't necessarily care about a forest until you see the magnificent, you know, birds of paradise, the 39 species. Um, inhabiting those forests or the orangutans or um, other creatures, you know, that, that are threatened, mm-hmm. so many creatures. Um, so I think it's, it's important to generate that knowledge so that when something goes wrong, uh, people already have the knowledge. They say, they say, oh, oh, something's happening in Borneo. Okay. And that's where the orangutan is. And, you know, I read about them and maybe I visited and saw them at the zoo and I care about orangutans and this isn't good. So I need to support orangutan conservation. So it's, it's a combination of action uh, projects that can ultimately lead in to positive impact and action, you know, on the ground action but also the projects that generate new knowledge because that knowledge base is so essential for um, protection of the planet in the future. 
So I think what everybody's doing, in my experience, with, for instance, the young explorers and the, all the young people I work with, it's all completely on target. And, um, and, and, uh, and they're all very talented storytellers because they're plugged into social media. And that is an incredibly powerful tool. So um, I congratulate all of them. Um, not only on what they've achieved, but also on how well they're communicating in a very concise way uh, what's going on around the world, and the, you know, what's going on on the planet with people and, and nature and wildlife. And people, of course, are part of nature and wildlife, but um, what's going on with all these species and the condition of the planet. And it all is, they are all pieces of a big uh, puzzle related yeah. to um, the future of this planet. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. I think that's a very, very good place to end this conversation. And I mean, I'm really grateful again for the opportunity you gave me many years ago and I'm sure, you know, all the hundreds of other young explorers and explorers are extremely grateful for your work. You've been that person behind the scenes, essentially creating all of these opportunities for all of us. And we're grateful. And um, I hope you keep yourself healthy there and keep safe in, uh, in the U.S. And I hope we'll be able to have another conversation one of these days in person uh, when all of this is over. Yes, JP, definitely. You, you, you and your family keep safe and healthy there. And I will look forward to seeing you maybe even in the Philippines. So. Yes, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But, definitely. But congratulations on everything you've accomplished. And, um, yeah, I'm very proud of you and, um, Keep up the good work in, in your all of your storytelling and in your in in your very close by explorations too because you can explore anything honestly. So even the inner exploration, as the great climber Reinhold Messner once told me, he said, "Now I'm focused on the inner exploration." <laughs> so. You know, it's, it's something you do at the same time that you go out and explore, right? You're learning about yourself, sort of. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, good luck. And that was Rebecca Martin. What an amazing person. What an amazing conversation. And I have to say thank you again, Rebecca, for for all that you've done for all of us uh, I don't think a lot of careers wouldn't be where they are at the moment if you didn't take that chance to put us out there and give us those grants in the beginning so I know for sure that my career would have probably gone on a different track if not for for Rebecca so so thank you so much and of course thank you to everyone who has been listening to this podcast who has been supporting this podcast over the last 200 something days 
we've produced now um, 28 episodes of the podcast uh, and well it looks like this is going to be something that we're going to be doing for a longer term even post pandemic so um we're going to be ending these this season uh on episode 30 of the wildcast and we have a very 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 special guest as well for the se- season finale of the wildcast i uh, hope you look out for that and next week on the wildcast I have a good friend Reg Plupino I've known him since uh, I don't know 2003 and uh, he does a lot of crazy things as well imagine biking straight for four days and three hours of sleep across France uh, or Australia he's done stuff like that uh, biking 1200 kilometers in four days uh ultra cycling that's his thing and really love this podcast because it brings back memories of our time together and you know 20 years practically 20 years of friendship so see you next wednesday on the wildcast thank you for listening and please share away to your friends who you think will benefit from the conversations that we have on the wildcast thank you so much